Welcome to the podcast of the Renew Community. We strive to be a Jesus community who cares about the things Jesus cares about. This podcast was recorded at our last gathering. Teaching like this is how we worship together every other week. We look to the scriptures seeking to become more like Christ. We're glad you're listening. Really glad that you're all uh, with us this morning. Um, it's been a really exciting uh, September for us. How many of you have been super busy the month of September with just a ton of things happening? And yeah, it's been crazy. I'm glad it's October. Uh, I feel like every time I get up and teach, the weather cools down. So I'm just saying, um, Ben, you bring the hot weather, I bring the cold. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, we've been wrestling together with a question for the, last, uh, for the last few weeks, and the question is really simple. Um, what is the gospel? And so a few weeks ago, Ben started us by inviting us to slow down, to enjoy and savor the gospel, or this really good news. And so what I appreciate is last gathering, we actually had an opportunity to hear from folks within our community who got to share the Jesus stories that impacted them the most, or as some called their favorite Jesus story. And so Aubrey and Katina and Gary actually started to work us through what it looks like to allow the gospel to shape our lives. And then most of you in house church last week uh, had a great opportunity to sit and to hear others within your house church share the gospel stories that radically shaped how they think about who God is and who they are. And so what's so encouraging about that is that we want to get a bigger picture of this good news. And so this series is an invitation to reimagine the gospel and to see that the really good news is multidimensional and complex in that it impacts all the areas of our life. And not only does it impact us as individuals and a community, but it has the potential and the calling and already is impacting the world. And for some of us, this is a message or this is something that we have heard many times. And regardless if this is the first or the hundredth time that you've heard the real good news, whether you're a skeptic, a spiritual but not religious, or a longtime friend of Jesus, you're welcome and we are glad that you're here. And I believe that there is something in the real good news for all of us, no matter where we come this morning. Because we've zeroed in on Jesus, because he is the vital center of the good news. And my friends, that is absolutely true. He is at the center of scripture. The scriptures just sort of circle around the person of Jesus, that his life, death, resurrection, and burial, and burial and resurrection is the central most important thing that has ever happened, that ever will happen. But we also want to acknowledge that although Jesus is at the center and the good news is at the center of the scriptures, the scriptures also begin and end in good news. And so uh, a lot of you are on Facebook and Instagram and um, some of you more than others. <clears throat> I won't let that be a statement of judgment. Um, however, one of the things that's so interesting, one of the things that I enjoy about those two mediums is the fact that you get to see these beautiful pictures that capture goodness. You know, you see 
family is in the pumpkin patch doing things. You see friends hanging out at these beautiful places. You get to see, for me, I'm always following the outdoors people. So just these beautiful mountain ranges and uh, amazing places to hike. And we see good food and all these other beautiful things. And if we take a moment and we look at the scripture, it's almost like looking at it in terms of Facebook because it begins with this really good news. And so Genesis 1, 26 through 27, just a little bit before that, we see that there's nothing and that God speaks into existence a world and he creates everything that we see around it. And at the culmination of his creative activity, he makes man and woman. And I want you to just take a uh, notice to the screen. We're going to read this. It says, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And so the scriptures begin with this good God who creates. And everything that he creates is good. But when he comes to humanity, what's beautiful about this picture is he doesn't just say it's good that I made male and female, but he says it's very good. Because my friends, we were created in the image of God. We were created in the image of God, in the imago Dei, the fancy way that theologians like to talk about the image of God. And what's so unique about the story of Genesis 1 and 2 is when we get to Genesis 2, it's almost like another version of the creation story or the creation account. And it says this, it says, as it's talking about God creating man and forming him out of the dust of the earth and then recognizing that he's lonely and he needs someone to be with him, that God creates male and female. And he he helps Adam fall into a deep sleep and then pops out a rib and, and forms woman the culmination of creation is woman. And so what we see in this story and and this this passage in Genesis 2 is, is powerful and punches us in the face. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And so brothers and sisters... You were created to be naked and to live a life without shame. I want us to sit with this statement for one moment. You were created in the image of God.
And that, my friends, is our origin story. That you and I and everyone on this earth was created in the image of God. But the story that begins in goodness is sadly shifted. I want us to pay attention as I, as, as I read Genesis 3. And I'm just going to ask you to stand because sometimes it helps get the blood moving uh, and we can kind of see this. Um, but this is what it says. <clears throat> it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may, eat the fruit. we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, you, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to them, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And so, my friends, the distorting, you can sit down, the distorting of the Imago Day is what I would love to title this section. That the original sin was a breaking of trust, and it's not trusting that God had created and planned for us was good, but even more, it's not trusting that who God created us to be, or who he created them to be, was enough, which actually very much relates to shame. God created humans in God's image, and he called them very good. And the serpent comes along and says, you're not good enough. If you eat this fruit, you'll be better. And so they take the fruit because they are ashamed that they might be lacking. They don't trust that who God said and who God created them to be is enough. They don't trust that they are worthy of God's relationship, and they distrust whether God might be keeping something good from them. And so sin is the breaking of relationships, and foundationally it can be broke down into distrust and mistrust. And so sin comes on the scene and things fall apart rapidly. It brings about guilt, shame, and death. It is deeply relational in that it mars and distorts relationships in the way that we see God, the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see others, and the way that we see the creation around us. It distorts the image of God. And one of the saddest moments of this story is when the two realize that they are naked. And they feel the desperate need to create fig leaves to cover up. This is what shame is. It's our perceived need to cover up. 
This is what shame is. It makes us want to hide. This is what shame is. It, shame breeds blame, and we start looking at others in this skeptical light and recognizing that it's their fault, and it's this person, and it's this person, it's not me. I want to be very clear as we talk about sin and shame. I want us to also understand there is this word called guilt, and a lot of us wrestle with guilt, and I want to make a really clear distinction. Guilt says that we have done something wrong. But it has the power to be redemptive when we confess it and we ask for forgiveness. But shame says, I am something or someone wrong. Shame says you are an outcast, you are worthless, you are uh, insignificant, you do not belong, you are unlovable. Shame says you better hide this part of your life because if people really knew, they'd leave you. And for some of us, we actually believe this in, the, in, in this way, that if God really knew, he would leave us too. My friends, our culture tells us this. We hear it, many of us heard it in school, and some of us, we've, we've heard it uh, at the workplace, we've heard it in our homes, and a lot of us have actually heard the shame message within church. And it's this weight that is always there and we, can do, we want to do anything we can to get away from it and to numb it. And you cannot consume enough, we cannot run enough, we cannot achieve enough, and we can never change enough to be, liver, to be delivered from shame. Shame makes us build up our walls. It makes us put on masks of performance so that we can earn love and acceptance. A few months ago, I was uh, on Facebook, and uh, I saw this beautiful picture of good friends, uh, and they were in some really cool destination place, and it was something like, love this guy, love this gal, something like that. And uh, what was so fascinating is 20 minutes before that was posted, I received an email from the spouse saying, I don't think our marriage is going to make it. Because my friends, shame lurks beneath everything in our culture. It's subtle, it's cancerous, and it's destructive. And it whispers lies upon lie upon lie. And when we listen to shame, it will tell us who we are, and it will tell us that we are unworthy, that we are unlovable, that we are not good. I think back to this, this story. I don't know if any of you ever heard this growing up, but I feel like this was just everywhere. There was this statement that said, sticks and stones will, but names will never hurt us. Right, yeah. But my friends, shame has a way of naming us. And many of us, I fear, live in this place. As I was working through this teaching this week, I recognize shame still has these hooks in my life, places where I want to hide, places where I feel like I am unlovable or unworthy or insignificant. And so this morning, do you feel worthless or insignificant? Do you feel unlovable or do you feel like you have some fatal flaw about the person of who you are that makes you unlovable and therefore you must keep it hidden? Do you believe that these deep lies of who others have said you are are true? And so I want us to, to, to think about something. I, you guys all got a note card uh, on your chair, and I want you to just pick it up for a moment. 
And as I said, shame has a way of naming us. And so what I would like for us to do, this is really vulnerable. And if you're like first time with us, you're like, dude, this is really weird. I don't really feel comfortable. So it's okay. You don't have to. But for those of you that, that feel courageous today, I want you to write what name shame has given you. If you need a pen, uh, there's some in the back. There's also, I'm sure a lot of you have pens, or you can share them along the, uh, just along the rows. But I want you to just take a moment, and I want you to write that what shame has named you. And I want you to hold on to it. Some of you may have multiple names that shame has given you. But with that in mind, thanks be to God that that is not the end of our story, that shame does not have the final word. Because even in the Genesis story of Genesis 3, God asks his first question to humanity, and that question is not, where are you? But the question is, where are you? That God is looking for his creation. He sees their brokenness. He, ex he understands that they're hiding. And he is genuinely concerned because the people that he walked with and loved and, were, and was with in an intimate way was gone and was hiding. So the first thing that God does after the fall, after sin, is he comes looking for them. And God always comes looking for them. He comes looking for us, and he is looking for you. Afredo mentioned, as Ben and I were meeting and talking about this teaching a few days ago, that this idea of the cool of the day, that God comes to humanity, to, to man and woman, in the cool of the day is this intimate relationship. Most of us have this picture of a God that the minute we screw up, he's there to like put his thumb on the back of our neck and to push us down. But the fact that what we almost sense in the story is that man makes this big mistake and that God waits until the cool of the day. Doesn't pounce and jump and go nuts. He waits and he comes to them. And even after that they have sinned, he still wants to walk with them in the cool of the day. And so God enters into their shame. Because my friends, one thing that I know to be true is that empathy destroys shame. The most, at the end of this scene is something so powerfully redemptive. And what takes place is this, that God sacrifices an animal to make covering for people. And that this sacrificial system is started because God loves these people so much and he recognizes that they see their nakedness so he makes a way for them to cover that nakedness, to cover that shame. 
And so that is the beginning of this sacrificial system. Just a few weeks ago, uh, our Jewish friends celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where they, where they take all their sin collectively as a community, and they confess it to God, and they stand up forgiven once again. But they've been doing this day year after year after year after year after year. And as we see that unfold throughout the scripture, this sacrificial system of recognizing I've done something wrong, so I need to do something about it. But God continues to pursue and pursue and pursue. And so the climax of this entire story, the end of this story, is that Jesus becomes our ultimate covering. That God comes to us to deal with our sin and our guilt and our shame once and for all. And he is crucified under the weight of your sin and my sin. And that he is resurrected into a new life so that we can experience life without shame. A life where sin has been destroyed and has taken its rightful place of death on the cross. And we have an invitation to live life free of sin and shame. And my friends, when we are laid bare before God and our whole lives are played on the jumbotron in front of everyone and we, I can just picture the shame falling on my own life, all my thoughts and my actions being exposed, the Father will look at us covered by Jesus and call us son and daughter, not the words that we have written down on our cards. Because the real good news is this. That Jesus reshapes our identity. I think about Aubrey's teaching at the last gathering, and she said that Jesus, as she talked about the woman who had the issue of blood for years, Jesus does this amazing thing. He, he heals her without him even knowing it, and then when he, when he calls her forward and she takes this beautiful step of courage and she stands in front of God, she stands in front of Jesus, Jesus looks at her and he calls her daughter. And he calls her daughter. Because the real good news reshapes our identity. That is who you are. You are a child that has been made in the image of God, designed to receive and give love, to be in relationship fully with God, with ourselves, the way we see ourselves, with others and with creation. We were designed to be in a relationship with our maker where we can be naked and feel no shame. And we recognize that something is wrong when the real tragedy of sin is that it pushes us away from God, that it isolates us from, our, from, from others and it pushes us into ourselves and we look at ourselves as broken and messed up and not worthy to receive love. But the good news is God does not let sin do its work. He destroys it on the cross and he calls us back to our real, true selves. So what do we do with shame? We do the opposite of what we think. We think that by posting better pictures or by building walls or by people keeping out, by making these beautiful, elaborate fig leaf dresses and pants, that we'll be all right and we'll be protected and safe. And we think we want to hide, but we need to be vulnerable and share it because that is what destroys shame. Shame drives us to want to hide. The good news of Jesus frees us and drives us into his light to say, here I am, Lord. 
And shame will continue to be a paralyzing force in our lives until we bring it out into the open. That is when it will lose its power. Because the truth is, the evil one loves to keep us in the dark. And the real good news is that Jesus frees us from sin and from shame. So I want to... one of the things that is so powerful about the way that Jesus does it is we could, we could almost read through all of the Gospels and just take notes on how Jesus frees people from sin and from shame. I want us to focus on one passage this morning, and it's in Mark 2. Um, and just, yeah, pay attention. If you, if you have your Bibles, great. Uh, you can follow along. If you don't, um, I'd love for you to uh, join in here. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, Uh, The people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to them, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. There is so much to unpack in this passage. But what is so pointed about what we see here is that as this paralyzed man is lowered and he is laying there completely paralyzed in, in his sin, in his shame, in a physical condition, we need to understand that in an honor-shame culture, his paralyzation does not bring him the benefits of what we may get in a situation like this where we get a lot of health care, we get a lot of different things that can help us. They get tossed aside and put in the outside, in the outcast. And so much of this is when people see a man who's paralyzed, they think there's a sinner. And so this man is literally paralyzed by his sin. And the shame that he lives with on a daily basis is so heavy. And so what is so pointed about this particular double resurrection or this double healing is that Jesus sees the man and he says something crazy. He says, your sins are forgiven. And to see Jesus, not even this man says nothing to him at all. I can just picture the eye contact of being lowered down, not being able to move, and, and locking eyes with Jesus, and Jesus looking at this man, and tears forming in his eyes, and tears forming in Jesus' eyes, and he's saying the words, you are forgiven. And in that moment, something is unleashed, and something is unlocked. This is not in Scripture, but I can almost picture, like, the fingers beginning to twitch a little bit. Because the sin and the shame and the stuff that has just held him down for so many years is beginning to break free. And we can imagine the crowd sitting there listening to this whole thing take place. And we think, 
what if it was this sin? What if it was the shame that has kept him paralyzed all of these years? Because I believe that shame has the power to do that. It has the power to keep us quiet, to keep us paralyzed, to keep us from saying, keep us from making eye contact. If you've ever been around someone who is broken with shame, they won't look you in the eye. And I believe the first thing that that man did when he stood up after the healing was he looked Jesus in the eye. My friends, Jesus wants to lock eyes with you this morning. He wants to look at you and he wants to tell you who you are that you are a son, that you are a daughter. Because some of us here this morning are so beat up and we've been carrying around shame for way too long. And that the weight of this has been so heavy for us. And I want to remind you and invite you this morning into the real good news that today is the day that you can let this go. And so we say, how? How do we do this? Well, Jesus is so simple in the way that he says. He says, repent and believe the good news. Uh, Dennis Bryce reminded me that repentance is a joy-filled life. It's a life that says when we make mistakes, we mess up, we just continue to confess. And we just experience joy because we recognize that we're loved even when we mess up. And some of us are thinking, man, I've tried to do this a thousand times. You know, I've, I've been doing yoga and eating a lot of yogurt, and I'm not sure what else I can do, but I'm stuck in this. But being, in, being stuck in the mud and in the cycle of shame, it makes us want to continue to pull away a God and to press into things that we think might actually help us. But I want to encourage us today that God is near and he's here. I also want to remind us that coming out of shame is a journey, and the journey is rooted in being reminded of your identity as a son and as a daughter. It is daily work of reminding ourselves of who we really are. Shame only dies when it is fully uncovered. It comes to an end when we realize that we don't want it anymore. When we share it with folks who will point us to Jesus, there are some people today here um, as we, we're going to have a time of communion coming up here soon, but we have folks here today, um, we have a prayer team, and a lot of you know that if you're new with us, we just have people that are here to pray. And specifically today, we want people to just feel the freedom to come up. If there's shame that you're hiding, we just want to invite you to come up and to be prayed for. There'll be some in the back, some in the front, like there's no judgment. Can we just say like, hey, there's no judgment. If people are going up to get, get, get prayed over, we're not going to sit there and think, oh, I wonder what they're, what's going on with them. We're just going to rejoice because people are actually getting this. People are saying yes and amen. We want to see shame broken within this community. And so that'll happen during communion. It's going to happen afterwards. But for those of you that are feeling that shame and the weight of that, I want to encourage you to take a step and to just be prayed for. Because when we uncover shame, we don't find a God who is angry and judgmental but we find overwhelming grace upon grace upon grace. I had a conversation just a few uh, weeks ago with a friend of mine who was going through just a rough season of life. And in this beautiful conversation, my friend mentions to me and says, I don't want any of this anymore. I, I would stand up gladly in front of all the people that I've ever met, that I've ever wronged, and tell them everything I've ever done. That's what a desperate person looks like when they say, I don't want shame to be part of this 
any longer. It was one of the most beautiful freeing conversations and something unlocked inside of his heart because of that. Before we move forward, I want to revisit the story of Jesus and the paralytic one more time. Uh, Did you catch the religious leaders in the middle of this story? I recognize that some of us here today, the shame that we experience is from church wounds. Some of us can almost picture like a pastor or a person or someone in church leadership that has hurt you deeply, that has caused shame to come upon you. And Jesus addresses that. And he continues to address that because he gets frustrated with the shame that religion places upon people. And so I don't want this to be weird or hokey, but on behalf of pastors and churches that have hurt you, I want to confess that, yes, churches have hurt us, that we actually stand in a place where some of us are still reeling from from words that were spoken to us by pastors and friends and mentors years ago. And I'm sorry. As an ordained minister who stands with a whole bunch of other pastors who who have done great things and terrible things, I'm sorry. And I pray that the shame that has been caused you by the church will be lifted. And so what does a shame-lifted community look like? What does the community called the church look like. It looks like guys who used to be paralyzed. It looks like uh, women who were bent over, women who had issues of blood. It looked like guys with withered, withered hands all being changed and transformed into the image of God. Uh, in the book Love Does, there's this beautiful story. Uh, well, it's kind of a crazy story about how uh, any, any, anyone ever skydived before? Any, wow, that's, you guys are awesome. I've never done it. But apparently, when you fall and hit the ground, that doesn't kill you. It's actually the bounce that kills you. Um, and, and I just, I find that such an interesting, I would think the fall would, would be what does it. But Bob Goff talks about, you know, what he wants to do is he wants to be someone who catches people, who catches people on the bounce. And I think that's what the beautiful picture of a church community who has said, we, we want to move away from the narrative of sin and shame is where people that catch folks on the bounce. We don't let that bounce happen. As soon as we see the crash and the the person there, we're there to catch them and to say, we're not going to let you die. Like, what would it look like if a community decided to live in that way? I think it would be really messy. I think there'd be bandages everywhere. I think there'd be uh, collapsed roofs. But I think we would see heaven and earth meeting all around us. Because this is the role of the church, that we get to embody the redemptive story of Christ with us, of Jesus with us, of God with us to bring freedom. And that we would be a community that continues to remind ourselves who we really are. So we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take just a moment in silence, and when, when you're ready, I would love for you to bring up what you wrote on your card and to just lay the card on the table. Um, And then we're just going to create some space for us to do that. 
And so some of you are like, there's no way I can let this thing go. I, I just, it's okay, just bring it up anyways, try. But we're going to take a few minutes just to do that. And so I want to give just a little bit of space for us um, just to bring those cards to the table. Actually, John, would you mind playing something so we have some, just a way to reflect with some music. And as we do that, I want to encourage you to be a community that says, yeah, let's, 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 let's let this go. As individuals, let's just bring it to a place, even if we feel like we can never fully come out, come open, uh, allow someone in on this, that we would know that it's anonymous. That we can at least make a statement and say, someday I hope to see this go. So we just want to give you us a few moments just to confess this physically by bringing our shame to the table. So friends, I want us to uh, join in something that I believe can be very powerful for us this morning. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the phrase, uh, shame has given me the name. And then I want you to respond, but God has said you are a child of God. Let's try that. But God has said you are a child of God. One more time. But God has said you are a child of God. Now, here's the deal. I don't want us to just sit there and like say that like, you know, we're in a really nice church. We're in a gym. People yell in gyms, and they shout in gyms, and that's okay. So as we hear the names collectively that we've been given by our culture, by things that have been done to us, I want us to proclaim, but God says that you are a child of God. So shame has given me the name stupid. Shame has named me not good enough, fake a fraud. Shame has given me the name insecure. Shame has given me the name failure. Shame has given me the name lacking. Shame has named me incompetent. Shame has given me the name frustrated. Shame has given me the name broken. Shame has given me the name nothing. Shame has given me the name incomplete. Shame has given me the name unworthy. Shame has given me the name loser, failure, and unworthy. Shame has given me the name weak. Undeserving. Broken. Inadequate. Unlovable. Ugly inside and out. My friends, we are children of God. When He sees you, He loves you. Will we? 
please come to a place where we don't want this to be what names us any longer, but we hear the fact that we're sons and daughters of God, that we would actually believe that, that that wouldn't be something that we just think about, but we would know it to be true from the inside of our lives, that we wouldn't allow the shame to continue to be what, what holds power over us. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we want to reimagine what the real good news is, because you are sons and daughters of God, and you are loved. Let's stand and worship together. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the Renew Community. This in no way should replace the formation within a community of Jesus followers. If you are looking for a church, would like more information about Renew, or would like to give financially to this ministry, check out our website at renewcommunity.org.